doctor tells them or what the press is telling them. It's a very personal decision. And I think if you refuse the mammography, then you also have an obligation to undertake uh, frequent self-examination to learn how to self-examine and to do it very faithfully because certainly the breast cancer problems are real. However, uh, with a slow-growing tumor, and the majority are slow-growing, they're not likely to reproduce and metastasize before they're one centimeter, and you can feel a one centimeter tumor. But the very rapidly growing ones uh, are apt to metastasize before one centimeter. But they double in about 28 days, so you'd have to miraculously do the mammography in that last 28 days, maybe at about 15, to pick it up early enough before it reached the one centimeter stage. So you really don't gain a lot by the mammography. Uh, but you do have to do the uh, breast examination. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Dr. Rosalie Bertel, mathematician and epidemiologist, researched many issues affecting the health of people and the planet. She was director of the International Medical Commission on Bhopal and organized the International Medical Commission on Chernobyl. After age 70, she published two books for a general readership, No Immediate Danger, Prognosis for a Radioactive Earth, and a survey of military uses of geoengineering titled Planet Earth, The Latest Weapon of War. Rosalie Bertel died in 2012. There are still people and countries that respect the kind of information she found. Australia has banned nuclear reactors. Germany announced the closing of its last reactors in 2023. The U.S. Department of Energy classes nuclear power with clean energy. They are encouraging proliferation of small reactors. In 2022, Biden budgeted $6 billion to keep older reactors going for a few more years. A billion goes to that Diablo Canyon nuclear plant near the beach where people surf in California. Wings thanks Laura Flanders and WBAI Radio for the archival interview with Rosalie Bertel, recorded in 1994. We also thank your community radio station, Suzette Cullen and Genevieve Vaughn, whose latest events can be found on the website maternalgifteconomymovement.org. The Wing Sound logo is from Libana's album A Circle is Cast. I'm Frida Worden. This is the Women's International News Gathering. The Service. following program is a rebroadcast. Dates, times, and events mentioned in the following program have already occurred. Thank you for tuning into KBOO Portland. Good morning, this is Disability Justice, an everyday pursuit and survival. Your host, John Griffiths. And Dina Wilder, board operator. Good morning, and in the studio today is, would you please um, give us your name and title? My name is Anna Lansky. I'm the interim director for the Office of Developmental Disability Services with the Oregon Department of Human Services. Uh, good morning, Anna. 
It's good to see you and good to uh, talk to you this morning. I was hoping that you would answer a few questions for my audience this morning. I'm happy to do that. Thank you. Uh, let's get started. First question is, of course, um, for KBU listeners, can you please let us know what ODDS stands for? ODDS stands for Office of Developmental Disability Services. It's one of the five programs under the umbrella of Oregon Department of Human Services. It's the program that provides supports for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in the state of Oregon. So um, what ODDS does is ODDS supports people with intellectual and developmental disabilities across age spans, so from birth uh, throughout their lives. Typically what the services are is one person helping another person who has a disabilities. People, uh, many people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities need support with some daily activities such as eating, dressing, moving around, um, going out into the community. Uh, managing their finances, um, going grocery shopping. Uh, so we have people um, who go out and help people with intellectual and developmental disabilities do all those things so they can be uh, members of their communities, they can fully engage in their communities. We also help people uh, with employment services, so those people who want to work. Uh, we help them discover their talents or um, their desires for their careers. We help them find jobs and we help them keep jobs so that people can also be contributing members of their society and they can have careers and jobs just like anybody else in the community. We help with transportation. We also um, make available um, assistive technology that helps people be more independent. So for example, communication technology. We also help people to have their homes become more accessible by providing home modifications for example, building ramps or widening doors, modifying bathrooms or showers so that people can be more independent within their own home and, um, you know, maybe not need as much help uh, from another human being. Uh, so we have a variety of supports that help people be um, more engaged in their communities, be more independent um, and have better lives. Yeah, and it's hard to give all the details about mm -hmm. what all the caregivers do, like my caregiver happens to help me out with editing on a radio show, so. There you go. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think our caregivers, um, you know, approach things in a very person-centered way uh, because each person is unique and has unique needs and they require supports in different areas of their lives. And so caregivers have to be very focused on what the person they support needs and uh, do it in a way that they want, help them in the way that they want to be helped in. Mm-hmm. So how are uh, DD services funded? DD services in the state of Oregon and is, you know, similar to other states is funded by a partnership between the state and the federal government. Our services are funded through the Medicaid program, uh, which means that, you know, majority of the funding actually comes from the federal Medicaid program and state is required to match it with uh, state funds. Um, so what that means is that we also have to, you know, not only figure out how we want to implement the program in our state in a unique way, but also we have to comply with federal requirements and regulations in how we implement the Medicaid program, because uh, both federal government and the state government come together to uh, fund this program. Oregon is also unique. It's one of the few states that have adopted a new option that became available under the Affordable Care Act called Community First Choice Option 
Here in Oregon, we call it a K plan. It's a state plan option. And what that means for Oregon is that in Oregon, all of the home and community-based services are provided through this program. And everybody who is eligible is entitled to receive those services. And so there is no waiting lists uh, like in other states in Oregon. Everybody who qualifies can access services and supports under the K plan. And when you say that there's a percentage coming from the government and there's a percentage coming from the state when it Mm -hmm. comes to funding, is that the uh, 66% is coming from the federal government and then uh, like 30? Yes, so the the regular federal participation is um, just over 60%. uh, Because Oregon has adopted community first choice option here known as a K plan, we also receive additional 6% matching dollars. And also during the pandemic, uh, there was some enhanced uh, federal participation to help states uh, get through the COVID-19 pandemic and help recover. Okay, thank you. So what is your role at ODDS? So my current role is I'm the interim director for the Office of Developmental Disability Services. Uh, Previously, for the previous eight years, I was a deputy director to the former director at ODDS, who was Lilia Tanady. She stayed with ODDS for over eight years. She left um, the program in November, and since then I've been the interim director. And it is my understanding that very soon the department is going to start a hiring process for the permanent director for the program, the permanent director position. Are you putting in your hat in that arena? I'm certainly thinking about it, but I haven't decided yet. (laughs) All right. What are the current challenges facing ODDS? Well, I think there is a couple that I will mention. One is definitely um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, all systems have been hit pretty hard. Many of our providers had to close at least for a period of time. For example, those providers that support people during the day, day support activities or employment services because of the need to isolate and for people to, you know, to prevent the spread of the COVID. And so there is a lot of recovery that needs to be done. The good news is that the federal government has provided a lot of resources for states to recover after the pandemic. But I think what it also means is that we need to figure out how to move our system forward because during the pandemic, a lot of practices have changed. A lot of work have been done remotely, including uh, services that our case management entities provide to people. Uh, Previously, we had a lot of meetings that were happening in person. So people would get together and do their, develop their plan for the year, what types of services they need, a lot of those things starts happening remotely. And so now we need to figure out how do we move forward? Because I think in our system, it is very important that the in-person contact, in-person relationships are built because our system and our services are built on relationships. And so I think it's very important that as we come out of the pandemic and as we come out of the remote world, uh, we keep uh, things that are working well, but we also go back and restore some of the practices that were very important to building relationship, to creating connections between people and also between people in their communities. Uh, so I think that's one. Another one is, I think is uh, everybody has heard about this, that we do experience a shortage of workers. It's not an Oregon unique problem. It's uh, something that we see across the nation is uh, many people need support and there is not, not enough workers that is attracted to this field, that are staying in this field. 
And so a lot of people find it difficult to find somebody to support them, uh, as well as our providers are struggling to find enough workers to hire so that they can provide the services that they need to provide to people that they serve. And, you know, we're looking at a variety of ways uh, to address that. There's been a lot of advocacy for additional funding so that we pay uh, a living competitive wage to this workforce. But we also explore in other ways in how do we also build more inclusive communities that are able to support people potentially without the need for uh, more workers, but also how do we um, use technology in a smart way that works for people um, and can help them be more independent and access the community a little bit easier uh, so that we don't rely on workforce as much. So I think that's something that we're going to need to continue to have conversations about is how do we provide adequate supports uh, while also um, figuring out how to attract more workers, but also how to create ways for people to not rely on workers as much. I was just kind of curious, so did the walkouts, does that affect how the future is going to function for ODDS? I mean, you know, we had a few bills that would enable us to give workers a a continuous raise in pay as long as minimum wage went up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so John, I I believe you're referring to um, our Republican senators and the representatives walking out from the legislative session and that paused a lot of work on some of the policy bills that were going through the session and potentially, um, you know, could, could have left agency without an actual budget for the next session and operating under continuous resolution. It sounds optimistic though. It looks like the Republican senators and uh, representatives have come back and I think there is work happening on the floor um, at the Capitol building right now. Um, and so some of the policies policy bills are gonna move forward and hopefully we'll have a budget that's passed But it's certainly one thing that uh, we're going to continue to advocate with the legislature is about adequate funding for workers in this field. And it's going to be not only for our system that supports people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but other systems as well uh, that provide similar work. And also uh, maybe some benefits like DSPs, direct support professionals, don't always have access to health care. Yes, definitely. It's uh, it's not just a wage, but it's the whole package. Many people are interested in that. And so I think definitely it's not just the wage, it's the benefits and other working conditions that are important to attracting and keeping workers within this field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Moving on to our different topics. Uh, for our listeners, can you please tell us about what ARPA stands for and what are ARPA grants for ODDS. Sure. So the ARPA stands for American Rescue Plan Act. It was a federal legislation that granted states funding for recovery after the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's uh, funding that specifically was granted to um, home and community-based programs to expand, enhance, and improve uh, their systems. And so we received some funding as well, and uh, the state is directed to spend the funding uh, by end of March of 2025. The Oregon Department of Office of Developmental Disability Services worked with our community partners to identify areas where we wanted to spend the money on. And so a lot of the areas were obviously directed towards recovery, capacity building, starting up new providers, 
developing our provider infrastructure, developing our crisis response systems, but also we um, wanted to direct some of this funding toward accessibility funding, service equity, and also self-advocacy funding. And I think that's one area where you would be particularly interested in is that we're uh, hoping to issue some grants uh, to support our self-advocacy efforts. Those grants hopefully will be coming out in the second half of this year. Uh, We're obviously working really hard to issue those grants as quickly as possible, but uh, the influx of new money created a little bit of delays because everybody's trying to create grants or other programs. And so uh, the stretch the state's capacity. I know there's been an ongoing frustration with delays with these grants, but we definitely uh, wanna issue them as quickly as possible so that folks can get the work done um, in recovering and developing capacity within our system, as well as folks like you developing more self-advocacy capacity uh, as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We look forward to them. Trust me, uh, my self-advocacy group has many uses for that money, along with many other self-advocacy groups in this state. How will these grants be rolled out? And I mean, you, you know, um, you, you, you've talked about some of them, but I mean, like something like the self-advocacy grants, it's not like you can just plop it into the hands of self-advocates. Obviously, it's got to go through some kind of uh, process. So, like, what is that process going to look like? Who's going to who? Who am I going to have to go ask for this money from? Right. So, um, typically, how the grants were allowed is uh, we um, the Office of Developmental Disability Services will open up a call for applications. Uh, so we'll be asking folks like yourselves and um, other self-advocacy organizations to come up with ideas of what you want to do with the funding, how you want to build capacity within self-advocacy, what projects you want to do. So we would want to have um, basically applications or submissions from self-advocates uh, describing to us what type of projects you would like to do and how much money you would need to do them. Um, and then it will be a competitive process where we would review all the grant applications and see which projects look good, uh, which ones would have the biggest, uh, most meaningful impact on our self-advocacy system. And you know, it may be so that we'll be able to fund all the grants, but it might turn out that we'll have to fund what the best applications because the funding is limited. Uh, but basically, that's going to be the process is we would want to hear from you what type of projects you want to do and how much they will cost. And there will be decisions made uh, on which which projects we'll be able to fund. Then we will notify those who will receive the funding and we'll work with them to receive the money. And we'll uh, be excited to see the projects um, actually be implemented. Yeah, boy, do we have some ideas. Great to hear. <laughs> we're definitely looking forward to to looking at those. What are the most exciting things about the upper up and coming future for ODDS services? Yeah, I think there is definitely a lot to be excited about. Oregon has achieved a lot in really creating a strong system that's entirely home and community based. We don't have institutions in the state of Oregon. We promote employment. We do not have waiting lists. Uh, so services every, are available to everybody who is eligible. Those are big achievements that are not universal across the United States. And so I think we should keep being proud of them. But I think that's also, um, you know, that's not a stopping point. That's not a pinnacle. I, can, I think there is much more for us to achieve 
Oregon is now actually on the verge of another big milestone. Uh, we are about to open up our services to all eligible individuals, regardless of their legal status in the United States, which is, I think is very important that recognizes that all people have intrinsic value in our community and should be supported to have full lives, regardless of where they come from. And they need to have uh, the opportunity to achieve their full potential within their communities. I believe that the entire community benefits when all people, regardless of their abilities, have supports to fully participate in and contribute in their communities. I think it enriches everybody's lives. And so we need to continue to work towards that vision. I'm also excited to continue to work to make more of a reality in the states and beyond through providing people supports uh, to fully participate in their community. We also need to be partnering with other systems like schools, mental health, healthcare, to advocate with them to be also more inclusive of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Because it's not only about the supports that we provide, we provide only disability-related supports. But people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to be successful need to also be included in and uh, be able to take advantage of schools and housing and healthcare and other things without the barriers that they're, they're currently experiencing. And so another thing is also how do we work with the greater community to be more welcoming and more inclusive? of people's intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we don't have to rely as heavily on disability-specific supports so we can be more supportive of people in a more natural way within the community itself. So I think those are big grand visions. I think they are realistic. I think together we can work towards that. I think our employment efforts have been a big example of how we can work not only within like vocational rehabilitation services and employment and uh, within ODES, but also with private businesses and organizations to be more inclusive and welcoming of workers with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I think that can be replicated in other areas of our society so that we overall build inclusive systems. And I'm really excited about that. I, I guess one of the one things I can really see is, you know, Oregon's kind of like being the first to do this or do that. And that means there's a lot of other states and a lot of other systems kind of staring at y'all and waiting either for you to fail or to succeed. And do you ever kind of like feel the pressure a little bit? I, I don't think so, because I think if the goal is not to perform for other states, if the goal is really find the best way to support people, it's really hard to fail because we don't do things alone. We don't do things in isolation. We work with our community partners. We work with our self-advocates and individuals receiving services and family members and providers. And we do draw from the experience of other states and our national partners as well. And so, yes, you can make mistakes moving forward, but the mistakes are also very important because you learn from them and you do things better. Uh, so I don't think we need to be deterred by fear of failure. I think we need to be excited by the opportunities and mistakes that we make are in person, important learning moments that can ultimately lead us to success. But because we rely on support of so many people and we collectively take responsibility over the success of our system, it's not that scary. Ah, good, good, good. I was also wondering, you had said something about barriers. 
Mm -hmm. uh, now, I know that when it comes to something like employment, it was probably mandated by the federal government to do employment first. But at the same time, the federal government didn't really move uh, remove a whole lot of barriers around SSI. Well, and I think that's an important thing to remember, too, is that there are certain things we can do at the state level, but a lot of things, like you said, are regulated by the federal government. And I think, unfortunately, even at the federal level, um, some of our regulations that we still operate under are from 1980s. And it's been, what, <laughs> over 40 years since then. And it's, uh, it's definitely time to take a fresher look at all the different regulations that exist, even at the federal level. Although, of course, it's very difficult because it requires act of Congress uh, to change some of the laws around the Medicaid program. For example, Medicaid programs still require states, uh, basically, the uh, to have institutional options, but home and community-based services are not mandatory. And I think that's, in this day and age, is reverse of the reality. Home and community-based services need to be the priority. They need to be the mandate. And so there is, for example, that federal regulation that needs to be reversed or redone to catch up to the reality of today where home and community-based services is what's desired by people, is what's you know is aligned with our values and where we're trying to take our communities. So there's definitely a lot of advocacy and work that needs to be also happening at the federal level to bring the Medicaid program regulation up to par with where we are today. How do we enact systemic change within the system? How, who do we outreach to? I think there is definitely a lot of opportunities for self-advocates and other community partners to push for systemic change, not only within our system, but within the federal systems as well. But here locally in Oregon, uh, we definitely try to work as close as possible with our self-advocates and with family members as well, because ultimately, you know, as you know, John, you know, our one of our core beliefs is for self-advocates is nothing about us without us. And so it's important to have that voice at the table. And so there's many opportunities uh, at different, most kind of established ways to participate. We have self-advocates on our vision advisory committee that advises the department or the program around our strategic goals. Uh, we have other different work groups and opportunities for people to be at the decision-making table, uh, whether it's uh, policy-making or like rule advisory committees or different work groups that are formed around specific topics. We typically outreach to our self-advocacy organizations to get representatives to the table. But I think I'm also excited about seeing some of those grants going out so that we can build more capacity, more leaders within our community for self-advocates uh, from across the state, from diverse communities, so that we can have more self-advocate leaders that we can engage with and who can then be delegates to other communities and constituencies that they represent. So I think there is definitely a lot of ways to reach out to both ODDS, to your local legislators, <laughs> to the governor's office, to your local case management entities and local governments that also play a role and make an impact on our system. I think um, we are very uh, accessible. Um, people do send us emails uh, to our you know, inbox. We take it very seriously. We respond to all the emails. Um, there is also a way to submit a complaint. And when I say complaint, typically, people can complain or submit a concern, but they also can send information or requests or advocacy statements to us as well through those channels. You mentioned an awful lot mm -hmm. of 
systems and people to reach out to and stuff like that. I mean, you know, for a single self-advocate to be on all of that would be overwhelming. Exactly. You're just kind of like, is there any way of one area or one person or one group or anything else that kind of has more attention than others? We try to listen to, I mean, everybody's voice is important, uh, but we do engage a lot with our self-advocacy organizations like Oregon Self-Advocacy Coalition. And so for somebody who doesn't have a lot of time or um, ability or for whatever reason can't engage very actively, it's good to get connected to a self-advocacy organization such as like that one, because then you can have your voice heard, but you have other leaders who can represent that voice uh, in official meetings or in uh, work groups, etc., cetera, uh, because, you know, then the whoever is assigned to participate can represent a broader coalition or a broader number of self-advocates um, and have their voice represented at, at the decision-making table. So in other words, just talk to Gabrielle, the executive director of OSAC. You've given me some good contacts or uh, you've given me some really good suggestions about how to advocate at the state level. This is the other area we really need help with is uh, advocating at the federal level. I don't suppose you know who we would contact or who we would communicate with when it comes to making some systemic changes at the federal level, like, you know, changing around SSI so we can uh, get some assets limits removed or get some marriage uh, uh, equality addressed and you know other things like that you wouldn't happen to know who we talk to at that level well best way to do that is to talk to the oregon congressional delegation and that would be the oregon's two senators and also the federal house of representatives uh, members as well so oregon congressional delegation would be the best way to do the federal advocacy because those people represent us at the federal congress who make the decisions about federal legislation including the medicaid laws and regulations so oregon congressional delegation would be the best way to advocate and i'd really like to thank you for i mean uh, directors uh, got it i mean I'm not certain how you found the time, but thanks for finding the time and talking to uh, my little radio show. Uh, I really do appreciate that. So, you know, thanks for coming into the studio. And, uh, you know, I hope you will uh, come around and talk to us again in the future sometime, you know. Well, thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. And I'll definitely be happy to talk to you again, whether it's about general topic or specific topic. Uh, we definitely want to support your work here at the KBU and your show because, um, you know, putting out information to people about these services and supports and um, is very important. Uh, and so we appreciate all your work here. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's the end of Disability Justice. Since we cannot be fully aware of everybody's difficulties within the community, we would really like it if you would send us your email, disabilityjustice at kboo.org. You are listening to KBOO Portland. 
KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations of programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Program Advisory Committee meets quarterly on the first Tuesday of March, June, September, and December at 6 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. My name is Mike. Uh, I work at KBOO as the data coordinator. I'm a KBOO host. I do a little show called Pandemonium. And 